Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the Business Affairs Editor here at The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, Comcast aimed for the sky and got it. Has anything changed for employees in the wake of the Me Too movement? I would say we've seen far more (laughs) conversation than action. And do as I say, not as I do. The annoying habits of extremely successful people. The problem with these people's quirks is that they get inflicted on the rest of the organisation. So you get an email from the chief executive at four in the morning, you're going to feel like you need to answer it. First, the American cable giant Comcast, under its boss Brian Roberts, has won the bidding war for the British pay TV broadcaster Sky. The final bid left a rival offer from Fox in the dust and valued Sky at £30.6 billion. Sky shareholders now have until October the 11th to accept the offer. Gardy Epstein is The Economist media editor and joins us now from New York. Hi, Gardy. Hi, Andrew. So this has been going on for a while. I think the first bid from Fox was uh, back in December 2016. Can you just give us a little uh, sketch of the history? Uh, Well, Rupert Murdoch had been wanting to get uh, control of Sky uh, for quite a long time. So this actually goes back to the old News Corp before he split it up into two companies. And then the phone hacking scandal sort of derailed him the first time around. So then he makes this bid, and Disney uh, makes a deal to buy Fox, which Comcast had wanted in on. They wanted to bid for Fox and were spurned by Mr. Murdoch. So Comcast stepped in to try and buy Sky, to up the bid for Sky, which was part of the Disney-Fox deal, which then prompted a bidding war between Fox, now backed by Disney, and Comcast uh, and Brian Roberts. Uh, who was determined to get something out of all this. Okay, so why why did Comcast, which ended up winning, want Sky so badly? Well, Comcast has a history of, of being an acquirer. I would say that investors uh, might ask the same question. They, they, they can get pretty frustrated with Comcast's empire building and would rather he just, Brian Roberts, just buy back, buy back shares and, and would feel that the, uh, the stock would perform better if they just focused on their core business in the U.S., uh, but from Comcast's perspective, they have they have visions of being a global company. Uh, they're mostly a U.S. buck company now. This will give them, you know, a huge expansion in Europe with a major broadcaster, satellite uh, company with 23 million customers, a you know Netflix-like platform with just a couple million uh, customers, in now TV uh, and European sports rights, and Sky also has uh, major studio rights from Hollywood. So they have quite a lot of assets. It's unclear whether it will be worth the price paid. I would say most analysts think that they're overpaying for these assets. Some of that may be down to this rather unusual way of, of resolving um, the bidding war that was used over the, over the weekend. There was a, a blind auction in the end. That's right. Uh, and a very unusual uh, blind auction of a public company. Uh, this is the kind of thing that usually happens for you know, real estate, small commercial transactions. 
there were a couple of bids back and forth first in this three rounds of bidding on Saturday. Uh, those were basically just kind of pro forma, uh, just warm-ups for the, the last round of sealed bids. Uh, and Comcast bid quite a bit higher than Fox did, uh, clearly determined to get it. It's, it's quite obvious that Comcast feels that they need to have this asset to become a global company, to build a global OTT platform to compete with Netflix, uh, the new Disney flicks that will start with Disney Fox. So this is their bid to become one of those big players. And in the end, you know, Fox loses out and, and by extension, Disney does. How, how big a blow is that? Oh, I think, well, from from investors' point of view, it's it's a win for Disney. Disney stock was up and Comcast was down after this news, uh, I think, based on the idea that Sky is, as a satellite broadcaster, uh, it's an it's an asset in secular decline. The studio rights that they have will revert to Disney and Fox, in, the, in their case, in a couple of years. The sports rights that they have, you know, are up for bid every three years and will get could get more expensive. There's a lot of questions, a lot of overhang over over the Sky asset. Meanwhile, Fox contender is 39% stake and hand over the cash to Disney, since the Disney deal will probably close after this deal. And then Disney would be able to pay down its debt that it's taken on by buying Fox, uh, which I think is attractive from an investor point of view. And strategically, it would allow Disney to free up more money to invest in its own Netflix-like platform, which will take quite a lot of investment. We're talking probably billions of dollars. Let's let's end by just reflecting on the Murdochs. So, you know, Sky is a remarkable company in, in, in many ways, changed the face of, of British broadcasting, made football the kind of crown jewel of, of broadcasting here and, in, and, and paved the way for other markets. How do you reflect on the fact that, that Murdoch and Sky is a relationship which now ends? Yeah, I'm sure it's bittersweet for Rupert Murdoch, but probably a little bit sweeter that in the end, someone paid a tremendous amount of money for it arrival, paying more than twice what he initially bid for it in December 2016. I mean, this is a premium of about 125% over what Rupert tried to get it for. He has to be at least satisfied with that, that his asset was deemed to be that valuable. Yeah, money will help, won't it? Gaudi, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, is facing allegations of sexual misconduct, which he denies. It is the latest in a string of accusations against high-profile men that have been made in America and beyond. The Me Too movement is almost one year old, and it seems to be gaining momentum. But is it changing anything in the business world? Sasha Nauter is our public policy editor. Sasha, tell us, what do you think the consequences of Me Too have been for businesses? Businesses are still figuring this out, but most obviously there's been reputational damage. We've seen this hashtag fly around the world. 15 million people have used the hashtag MeToo, not just to shame individuals, but also to shame companies. And companies are still figuring out what the exact business costs of this are. In some cases, it's quite obvious. You've seen share prices of some firms respond to 
either rumours or outright news of, of executive departures. Um, you've also seen some class actions and lawsuits both by employees as well as by shareholders, again on the back of sexual harassment claims. Firms are still figuring out what exactly this is costing them, but they certainly aren't keen on this kind of press, as you can imagine. So I think what you're describing is sort of greater awareness of, on the part of corporates of the issues thrown up by Me Too, notably sexual harassment, but other things too, like the gender pay gap. Is it possible to sort of see tangible changes in policy that result from that greater awareness? You're dead right. I mean, awareness is sort of the key word here. If you had to give credit to one thing in the last year, it's awareness and the noise that has been caused in in mostly a very positive way on the back of Me Too, not just to the extent of, of sexual harassment, but to other forms of inequality, primarily between men and women, but also between others in the in the workplace. Beyond awareness, I would say we've seen far more <laughs> conversation than action. So there's been some big gestures like firings and companies saying we have zero tolerance policy against sexual harassment. But if you then start to scratch beneath the surface, it all becomes a bit vaguer. There are some very obvious things firms have done in partly just to tick the boxes or that also that they can point to doing something amongst that they will mention things like we've reviewed our policies and our codes of conduct we've reminded our employees of that you know we don't tolerate sexual harassment etc it's been a great year for the training industry even though the evidence around training is is mix it best um, but again something to do right so a lot of firms have sort of dusted off their training exercises and perhaps to give a little bit more credit some are working on their reporting mechanisms which is a particularly important point here harassment is hugely underreported in general but particularly in the workplace where it often involves a, a supervisor or somebody senior it is massively underreported and some of the better practices involve slightly more clever systems than just going to HR. So for example, anonymous helplines, etc, where firms are hoping that employees will feel better able to report harassment when it happens. One of the important things is that so far firms have been able to hide behind while we didn't know it was happening. So those are sort of the most obvious changes that have been going on. Again, a lot of fairly symbolic, relatively small tweaks. What's really missing is sort of the larger action, the harder actions that firms could do to tackle the root causes of sexual harassment, which go well beyond dealing with individuals, right? So accepting that actual harassment is not just about, you know, having a couple of rotten individuals in your company, but actually have to do with a company culture that allows that kind of power abuse, changing your leadership structures, making sure you have more diversity um, in, in your senior leadership is one of the easiest things to do. We know that there's no illusion that, by the way, if we, if women run companies, that harassment will all of, a, all of a sudden disappear. But we do know that the firms sort of most where, where harassment is most prevalent tend to be firms with huge power differentials. So lots of senior men at the top, lots of junior women at the bottom. So one of the easiest things. I say easiest, one of the most obvious things to start tackling is gender inequality in both pay, promotions and leadership. We're talking about massive social change, in other words, which will take many years to unfold. So is it, is it too early to be doing a kind of accounting of for Me Too? Yeah, I think that's probably fair, actually. Any firm that after a year would claim they've you know suddenly seen harassment 
drop substantially. I'd be a little bit hesitant to believe such figures. And in a way, you'd probably want to see the opposite. You want to see it being acknowledged more, first of all, and then dealt with. So, yes, I think it is I think it is too early to say whether or not Me Too has changed business. But we can say that sort of the first steps have been made in terms of awareness. But it really is now up to business to go beyond sort of the symbolic gestures and, 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 and the easy stuff and to now start grappling with, with, with the harder stuff. So if we were going to have this conversation in 12 months' time, is there one concrete thing that you'd be looking at as a, as a measure of corporate progress towards the goals of the Me Too movement? If I can pick two, um, I would pick, firstly, reporting, just at least starting to acknowledge that it exists and in what numbers and getting firms beyond the idea that any numbers are bad. Um, in fact, numbers are better than no numbers. Um, but secondly, as I mentioned before, I, I do think diversity in leadership is, is a very important metric just because it's such, a, it's such a root cause. Sasha, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Andrew. Finally, there are plenty of books and articles telling us how to emulate the world's top bosses, getting up at 5am, emailing at the treadmill and all the rest of it. But is that the whole story? Philip Coggan, the author of The Economist's Bartleby column, has been taking a closer look at the annoying habits of highly effective people. Hello, Phil. Hello, Andrew. Are you a highly effective person? Probably not. Uh, And I was reflecting on the fact that if I were to emulate the example of Tim Cook, who gets up at 3.45am in the morning, all I would achieve is a uh, divorce from Mrs Bartleby. Um, the, The problem with these people's quirks is that they get inflicted on the rest of the organisation. So Tim Cook may say, you don't have to answer me straight back, but you could be pretty sure that if you work for Apple, you get an email from the chief executive at four in the morning, you're going to feel like you need to answer it. And it works almost as badly in the opposite direction. So Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, has just said at a conference that he likes to potter about in the morning, have breakfast with his kids, and then um, have a cup of coffee and then only have meetings at 10 a.m., which sounds quite relaxing for his immediate juniors. But that's not a luxury that's available to you if you work in an Amazon warehouse. Then your hours are something like 7 o'clock in the morning till 5.15 in the evening, according to the GMB union, or 5.45 in the evening till 4.15 in the morning. So people who do that won't be having breakfast with their kids. So you're sort of taking aim at two things there. One is kind of the eccentricities or the, the, the lifestyle habits of certain CEOs rippling straight into their underlings' lives. And the other is kind of a hypocrisy argument. Yes, I think the idea that we can emulate these people and that will bring us success is is just wrong. And also, I think they can seem otherworldly. If you are a CEO, you uh, have a lot of people around to support you. You will have people look after your kids to ferry you to work. Richard Branson was another good example. He said he hates people being late and his customers on Virgin Trains uh, laughed rather hollowly at that. But Richard Branson has people to get him there on time. If you are a worker and you're dependent on public transport or you have to drop your kids off at school because you don't have a nanny or someone else to help you, then you can't always manage to do that. And executives who have this sort of very high standards on the rest of uh, people look as if they don't understand the pressures that other workers are under. But are you are you arguing that in effect CEOs should live like exactly like the rest of us? So Bezos Bezos getting up at ten a.m. might seem like it's setting quite a good example, but he should only do that if he's going to give ten a.m. work starts to all of his employees. I'm saying that they should not set their lifestyles out as an example for the rest of us because. 
it just can't possibly work. So, yes, I would have thought it would be nice if Jess Bezos would think about what he likes and whether other workers are entitled to the same thing. But I think the, the danger is that this has become a version of the medieval lives of the saints. Instead of, instead of being canonised, these people get millions of share options. But they're not saints. They have got to the position perhaps by their brains, but we shouldn't imagine that we can have anything much to learn from the way that they live their lives. And you don't think so? I'm sure that someone would say, you know, they, they work harder, they get up earlier, they do, they do more work. That, that is itself part of the reason for their success. People who clean offices and hold down two jobs work hard. People who are nurses on the emergency room night shift, they work hard. They don't become millionaires at the end of it. It's wo- hard work is not the only criterion for success. You have to have something more. Are ineffective people even more irritating, though? <laughs> Depends whether they're your manager or not. <laughs> well, that's a good way to end. Phil, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I could, couldn't resist that one. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. You have until Thursday, the 27th of September, to vote in the People's Choice. We've been nominated in three categories. Go to loveyawards.eu. I'm Andrew Palmer in London. This is The Economist. Economist.